You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Lucky Mouse creeps into a Central Asian house... Dixon's Carphone Data Exposure presents complex legal and regulatory issues. It's the first big incident since GDPR came into effect. Lazy State is another CPU speculative execution bug. The U.S. Congress doesn't care for ZTE. Australia's government is wary of Huawei. And the EU doesn't like Kaspersky at all. If you didn't like the end of net neutrality, wait until you get a load of the proposed EU Copyright Regulations Article 13. And more hacking is expected from Pyongyang. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, June 14, 2018. Researchers at Kaspersky Lab report an espionage campaign against an unnamed Central Asian country's servers. The evidence points to a Chinese threat group tracked variously as Lucky Mouse, Emissary Panda, APT-27, and Threat Group 3390. The campaign hit a national data center. Kaspersky researchers think the goal is probably to inject malicious JavaScript code into government websites connected to the data center, thereby transforming those websites into watering holes. It's unclear how Lucky Mouse crept in, but the researchers speculate that a watering hole attack gave the Threat Group its initial entree. Dixon's Carphone, the large British electronics retailer, has sustained a big data breach that it disclosed earlier this week. Data for almost 6 million customers' pay cards were exposed in the incident. Dixon says the effect of the loss was limited. Most of the cards were chip and pin, and the information loss was partial, not enough to be of much immediate use to criminals. Dixon says it notified the card companies promptly, and they've seen no evidence of fraud emerging from the breach so far. It's too early, however, to say that the people whose data were affected are out of the woods. Criminals can try to build on the limited information they do have to work up usable profiles of the victims. Dixon's also said that 1.2 million records with non-financial personal data, names, email addresses, physical addresses, and the like, were also exposed. They've seen no fraud resulting from these either, but the same principle applies here. Such information can find cumulatively more damaging uses. The company is referring to the incident as an attempted hack, but better safe than sorry. So if you are or were a Dixon's customer, here's some advice, courtesy of Sophos and their Naked Security blog. It has applicability to most breaches of this kind. First, watch your statements for unusual transactions. Second, because some personal data was lost, if you get an email or a phone call from someone asking you to verify account or payment details, don't bite, no matter how much plausibility the details may lend to the phishing. And finally, if you think your pay card was compromised, cancel it, 
and ask the provider to issue you a new one. British authorities, including the National Crime Authority, the National Cybersecurity Center, the Financial Conduct Authority, and the Information Commissioner's Office, are all investigating. The complexity of the investigation and the number of different agencies involved suggests its importance. Not only are national regulations increasingly prescriptive, but this is also the first major breach since GDPR came fully into effect late last month. Fines could be heavy. How this case is handled may shape expectations for future enforcement actions. Cybersecurity continues to be a hot market segment, with no immediate signs of slowing down. For communities looking to attract businesses, cyber companies often bring well-educated, affluent employees, and there can be significant investment in technology and infrastructure as well. So it makes sense that U.S. states would work up incentives to be more alluring than their neighboring states for those coveted jobs. Our home state of Maryland recently did just that. Stacy Smith is executive director of CAMI, the Cybersecurity Association of Maryland. Senate Bill 228 was passed through the uh, legislative process this year in Annapolis, Maryland, and the bill was called the Cybersecurity Incentive Tax Credits Bill. And essentially, it has two sides to it. Uh, one side is a tax credit that incentivizes entities and individuals to invest in Maryland cybersecurity technology companies. And the other side provides a tax credit for small Maryland businesses to buy their cybersecurity solutions locally from Maryland cybersecurity providers. And that could be purchase of both services and products. So let's go through each of those individually, uh, what the state is hoping to get out of them and why that's a good investment uh, against the tax base. Maryland has had a tax credit in place for the investor side, providing a tax credit to cybersecurity companies when an individual or an entity invested in them. Um, However, that isn't as valuable to a cybersecurity company as providing the investment or the tax credit incentive to an investor to invest in them. So the state feels that it will attract more investment dollars to Maryland cybersecurity companies that have, or, or to companies that have a an innovative cybersecurity technology that they would like to bring to the market. On the other side, the buy local, um, this is a nationally unique tax credit program, and we're especially excited about it at our organization because we're focused solely on helping Maryland cybersecurity companies grow by connecting them with potential customers. So to hear about an opportunity for a tax credit like this to be passed uh, through legislation was very exciting to us. And so we spent a lot of time in Annapolis trying to bring this bill to the finish line, and, and luckily it happened. The, the advantage of this is that it will not only help our Maryland cybersecurity companies another tool, I guess you could say, in, in their, their sales kit um, by being able to say to a company, if you buy this product or service from me, you'll get a tax credit. But it's also providing a very needed resource to small businesses who may not be investing in any way yet in cybersecurity. Um, a lot of them will tell you, small businesses will say that they, they might not know who to go to for cybersecurity products or services, but more critical for them is having the funding to be able to afford cybersecurity products or services. Yeah, it was interesting to see that the bill got bipartisan support. Um, I'm curious, uh, how does it compare to some of your neighboring states? So is, is there, and do you expect this to be sort of a, a competitive thing as, uh, as states in the region do their best to attract these sorts of businesses? 
Well, it'll definitely be, be a, a great tool for attracting cyber companies to come to the area, also cyber companies to stay in the area. Um, also, maybe some, some businesses that are looking to locate somewhere, you know, tax credits are a huge plus in deciding where to locate. As far as neighboring states, we have not been able to find any state in the nation that has any kind of a tax credit like this. But I can tell you that um, with the promotions that we've done thus far, we have been contacted by several to understand what the details are of this bill and um, actually talking with some other states about some of the cybersecurity programs that they're lobbying to put into place um, and kind of just learning from each other what would be good for the industry, what's good for business, what's good for the cyber companies as well. And it was really exciting and refreshing to see the bipartisan effort for this. Um, the bill started as the Investor Incentive Tax Credit Bill, and it was put forth by Howard County Senator Guy Gazzoni. And Governor Hogan had the buy local portion. And together, they realized that both bills had a better chance of passing if they took the key elements from both and essentially combined them into one bill and put it forth as a bill together. And luckily that worked. And we saw you know, legislators on both sides uh, saying, hey, if this is good for the industry, doesn't matter who brought what part forth, let's just, let's just get this thing finished. And um, it passed on the very last day of our legislative session. We're certainly excited about it. That's Stacy Smith. She's executive director of CAMI, the Cybersecurity Association of Maryland. Intel reports finding another CPU security issue in its core-based processors. Called Lazy State, the bug is already addressed in some systems. Other mitigations will follow. It's another speculative execution flaw, assessed by most observers as being of moderate and not severe importance, hard to exploit and easy to fix, as ZDNet notes. Chinese and Russian companies continue to face headwinds driven by security concerns in different national markets. ZTE's recovery remains in doubt, and the company remains in very bad odor with the U.S. Congress. Australia's government is very leery of Huawei, and although Huawei says it's still very much in the bidding, Australia is considering excluding the company from any work related to the build-out of the national 5G system. This is a long-standing disquiet on the part of Australian authorities. Last year, they moved to block Huawei's participation in an undersea cable that would have served Papua and transited Australian territory. Kaspersky was hit with a significant setback in Western Europe. The European Parliament yesterday voted overwhelmingly in favor of a ban on the company's security products from official networks. Proposed EU copyright laws have aroused considerable alarm. The end of the Internet as we know it is widely predicted. Much opposition derives from a proposal to essentially extend content moderation to the Internet as a whole. Article 13 of the proposed European Copyright Directive would require anyone posting any content for public use or viewing to run it through a copyright filter. Such filtering is thought to represent essentially the same approach as YouTube's current content filter, Any text, audio, imagery, or video that flunked the filter's check would, if the EU regulation were adopted, be blocked from the Internet. One of the problems critics see with Article 13 is its apparent overlooking of copy fraud, falsely claiming intellectual property rights over content one in fact has no ownership of. And the proposal does seem to combine unreliable technical content filtering with a cumbersome and onerous compliance regime. 
North Korea is widely expected to resume its ambitious program of cyber operations following the modified, limited restraint it displayed during the run-up to this week's U.S. DPRK summit. We know, we know, this is betting on form. And we know that North Korean hacking expected has become an evergreen headline, right up there with heat wave hits elderly hardest, or Brazil rising power in the Western Hemisphere, or Cleveland fans expect disappointment, or even EU regulation threatens freedom of speech. Still, betting on form isn't a bad bet, especially in this case. Expect more badness out of Pyongyang. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Dr. Charles Clancy. He's the director of the Hume Center for National Security and Technology at Virginia Tech. Uh, Dr. Clancy, welcome back. Um, I saw on your Twitter feed you made note of uh, a journal paper that mentioned something called anti-fragile communications. This caught my eye. Describe what's going on here. So anti-fragile is the opposite of fragile. If something is fragile, then it is brittle. It breaks easily. And if you look at uh, trying to build a resilient communication system... Uh, Certainly, you don't want a fragile one uh, that is easy to disrupt. Uh, And generally, you want something that is resilient, meaning that uh, it responds reasonably well in the face of adversarial conditions, whether that's uh, hostile jamming or just general interference. Antifragile seeks to take that a step further. 
where rather than being degraded but being able to bounce back in the face of adversarial uh, RF environment, a uh, anti-fragile communication system would actually be able to take advantage of the hostile elements in the environment to improve its performance. Hmm. And how does it do that? So a specific example would be uh, as you look at jamming technology. It used to be jammers would just blast out Gaussian noise that was right. completely unrelated to the uh, signal they were seeking to jam. Spark gap generator, that sort of thing? Exactly. As we've seen over the last uh, probably 10 years, jammers have gotten more sophisticated. Uh, they are creating waveforms that are specifically targeting uh, their, their adversaries' signals and are, uh, in some cases, designing signals specifically to target adversaries as they've transmitted over the air. So anytime an adversary is uh, making decisions about how to jam you and what energy to transmit based on what you're doing, uh, you can actually use that against them and use their jamming signal as a way to amplify your own signal. Hmm. So the uh, the simple example might be if you have a signal, a weak signal, that can transmit on two different channels, channel A or channel B, and you have a smart jammer that is uh, transmitting high-power jamming signal on channel A or channel B, uh, you basically just ba bounce back and forth between channel A and channel B. Uh, one represents a one and the other represents a zero. Uh, and the jammer is sort of playing whack-a-mole and, and jamming you. But uh, the person you're communicating with can just observe what channel the jammer is jamming uh, in order to decode your signal. That's interesting. So, yes, using the ability for the jammer to be agile, in this case, uh, is actually uh, to your benefit and not theirs. Uh, exactly. Um, now, of course, this is very uh, proof of concept uh, and preliminary. I certainly haven't demonstrated this against any actual systems in the world. But it's a really interesting example of a proof point that um, there may be a whole uh, additional realm of robust and resilient communications, particularly military users can explore over the coming years in order to ensure that their systems are available in the face of an increasingly sophisticated adversary. All right. Well, it's interesting stuff as always. Dr. Charles Clancy, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.